Hello there, and welcome back to another episode of Thanks, Morris. I am Marie, the SLP, and today we're going to talk all about pragmatics. Before we get started, I just have to share my excitement about the fact that I am recording on my brand new MacBook Pro. It finally came. I am up and running and no longer needing to borrow Mark's Surface Pro. However, thank you, Mark, for loaning me your device. Um, All right. So now that we've gotten that little tidbit out of the way, let's get into the topic of pragmatics. This suggestion actually for a um, a podcast came from Rebecca, who is a future speech language pathologist. Shout out, Rebecca. Good luck with everything. Uh, she asked if I could talk about, you know, tips and experiences when targeting pragmatics. And so I thought, yes, because I do it a lot in the preschool world. Um, and I've done it in middle school. I've worked with high schoolers working on social skills and uh, elementary school age kiddos. So I, I have somewhat of a well-rounded background, obviously a heavier emphasis with the preschoolers because that's where I've spent most of my career as a speech language pathologist thus far. Um, but we are going to talk about various assessment strategies, treatment strategies, and I'll definitely be throwing in some of my own anecdotes as well. I do want to say, though, this is my quick tips version of everything. So I recommend you researching uh, via ASHA's evidence maps, research articles, and just making sure that the evidence-based practice side of things is covered when you're going into an assessment or writing goals or treatment planning or whatever. Make sure you've got that covered and you've done your research and you're thinking about your individual client. Okay, so let's get started with the basic definition. What are pragmatics? Um, They're the use of language, right? When I looked on Ash's website for the the full-on definition, I was directed to the social communication overview, which is pretty appropriate if you think about it. When I think about pragmatics, it is important to look at where they fall in in terms of social communication because, and especially as I see in my preschool world, We want to talk about function and pragmatics. Biggest function is sometimes in the world of social communication, engagement, um, how our students are using their language to engage in reciprocal communication, right? Or to get their needs and wants met. And definitely, you know, when you start thinking about those school age kiddos and middle school kiddos, um, it's how they use their language to access their curriculum, which is really important too. Another thing that I um, want to stress that I've kind of learned over the years, and I've had my aha moments with, is that how we use language is highly dependent on our social environment, right? Sometimes social norms are different. If you think about it in terms of different cultures or countries when you travel, obviously, you know, there's different gestures, there's different facial expressions. Um, You know, sometimes I'll bring a kiddo into the speech room, which might be a calmer environment than a classroom, and things might change there as well. So how the environment's set up can play a huge role into how we use our language. So just keep that in mind. Another thing um, that I like to talk about when working on the pragmatic stuff and the social communication stuff is theory of mind, which I love theory of mind. And it's so it's so funny because it is an abstract concept and trying to explain it to other people can sometimes be really hard for me, but I love it so much. Um, And the way I think about theory of mind is understanding just like the basic, the most basic form of it, understanding that another person has their own thoughts. Another person has their own perspective. Another person has their own um, view of the world, which is basically perspective, right? But um, I always stress that when working with individuals who have a harder time with social communication, we need to understand the why. Why is it more difficult for them to understand my social cues and use their own communicative functions to clue me into what they're trying to communicate? 
So it's really important when we're looking um, and kind of maybe keeping that theory of mind aspect in our brains when we're talking about pragmatics and social communication, that we make sure that we're emphasizing the need to owl. And if you know what I mean by saying owl, O-W-L, you know that I'm talking about our fun little acronym for observe, wait, and listen. Because we need to do those things to learn about our students or our clients. We need to do those things to learn how they are communicating because they probably are communicating just in a different way than maybe we would anticipate. Um, We want to understand how they perceive the world and meet them at their level instead of forcing another person to meet us at our level, right? It just opens up our minds. It opens up our perspectives. And we really, as individuals, are opening ourselves up for a whole lot of learning when we do that. It's important to understand that we should be finding what brings our clients and students joy and use that to build rapport and encourage engagement. It's not about, I'm going to say this, okay, really loud. (laughs) It's not about changing their world. It's about tapping into it and learning about it to build a commonality. That's my biggest thing for theory of mind, for social communication, especially when there's some barriers with social communication. And, you know, I'm going to talk about ways to do this and treatment tips, but we're going to start talking about assessment. I just wanted to give you kind of a background of why I love talking about this so much. So when talking about assessment, I'm obviously going to start with preschoolers. Um, This is where I start out, and I think a lot of us will start out maybe, you know, in earlier um, interventions, um, that two-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old age, obviously, it you might do a few different kinds of observations. There are some scales you can use, and I'll talk about those as well. Um, And so I'm going to give you a couple of things I go over, but there's more. There's always going to be more. So if you have something in mind and I don't say it right now, research it. Um, There's there's plenty of answers out there. Again, ASHA has great resources when looking for assessment, um, different assessments you can use and different ways you can do informal assessments. But here's mine. So Um, For preschoolers, I notice that social communication assessment is very observation-based. And when I say observation, I mean, um, you know, watching when a child is playing, doing that owling, that observe, waiting, and listening, Um, making sure that you have a checklist of some sort. So when you are maybe engaging in some kind of play with them, you're observing how they request, how they use their gestures, how they use their facial expressions. Does their facial expression change Um, you know, for certain things, if they're excited or upset when you withhold things, right? Uh, Do they initiate at all? Things like that. Those those basic pragmatics checklists that you might see, you can make one for whatever suits your needs to help you build a well-rounded report. Um, And then another thing that's very important, especially for those early language and preschool uh, assessments is the parent interview. And I love to sit down with parents and do this. Sometimes it's a little bit harder. Sometimes you have to send out a, a questionnaire. Um, but if you can have that questionnaire and have a face-to-face conversation with a parent, it's much more valuable because then you might come up with some questions that you didn't have on your questionnaire and get even deeper into what is going on in different environments of the child's life. Um, so those are good things to keep in mind. I highly recommend trying to do that parent interview if you can't do it face-to-face over the phone, but as long as you can have a dialogue, I think that's very important and it just starts building rapport with the family too. So why not do that as well, you know? And then there's a few obviously normative things that we need to cover. Um, so some of the norm reference assessments that I will do again, 
they're very parent interview based or parent answer based, very um, checklist oriented. But the first one that I like a lot is the CSBS developmental profile. And this is the communication. um, Oh, gosh, I have to access my notes, guys. The communication behavior scales. Um, communication and symbolic behavior scales. There we go, developmental profile. And so this is an actual assessment. It kind of reminds me of the PLS. I know I had to say the preschool language scales to you all, right? Right. Um, it does, the way that the actual assessment is formatted does remind me of that because there's a lot of now do this, now drop this, go get that, do this, you know, that kind of a thing. So the I don't always like to do that. It can be a little bit overwhelming in a preschool assessment, but if you can do it, I would recommend it. Um, Just check the ages because I think it stops at three years old. Um, So I would just double check that one. But the, it also has a parent questionnaire, which I will give out as an informal questionnaire to get a good idea of what social communication looks like at home, what behaviors come up when communication's not always understood. So it has a really good parent questionnaire. Again, I use it informally for my older kids um, in, you know, because they might be past the norm, the norm uh, sample on that test, but I'll use it just, just to talk about my parent interview in a report. So uh, it's great. Another thing that I'll use for my older kiddos, so like my four-year-olds, maybe just turning five, is the self preschool pragmatics profile. Um, and that the self is the clinical evaluation of language fundamentals. There's a elementary school version. I believe there's a middle school version, maybe a high school. I'm not sure, but there's a preschool um, assessment as well for the self. And they have um, a pragmatics profile that you can send home to parents. And it's just check boxes. I think it's one of those like sometimes agree, always agree, whatever, you know, where there's like four different options for every statement. So there's a parent one, and then you can also give it to the teacher. So if the student is already, you know, if you're doing like a triennial or you're doing an informal reassessment because you're noticing some issues with pragmatics, um, it's a really good one to get a view of what the teacher is seeing in the classroom, but then also what the parent sees. Because the thing here, when you can do things that match parent or, or pair parent and teacher input, you can get a really good idea of where a student might be breaking down with their social communication. I remember my CF year, I um, would, my goal, I think it was just, you know, maybe the type A personality in me. I would really want the parent questionnaires to match up with the teacher questionnaires as best as possible. I thought that was the idea. And let me tell you, if somebody had told me, no, Marie, that's okay if they don't match up. It's okay if they're completely different because look at what that shows you. I wish somebody would have told me that or at least said it in a way I understood because my supervisor was awesome and she probably tried to get that through my head, but I was such a perfectionist, I couldn't quite see it clearly. When parent answers and teacher answers don't match up, it is okay. And let me tell you why. And let me tell you just what I'll tell a parent in an IEP meeting when they say, well, how come, you know, my son can sit and use his whole body listening in class, but at home he can't, or vice versa, because maybe in class he has a harder time, but at home he doesn't. So one of the things I'll tell parents is there's there are two completely different environments. There's two sets of structure, two sets of routines, and it's okay 
he's showing us in class he can do this maybe because he the routine is set up in a way that he's successful. So here are things you can do at home. There's no fault in it though, right? It's not the parent's fault for setting that routine up differently. That's their home life. It's okay. It just hasn't generalized from classroom to home and we'll work together to make it happen or to help the child. And then in the other sense, maybe they have a harder time with so many demands of the classroom. So at home, there's less demands. It's a little bit more free structured. And they might not show the same um, difficulties that they're showing in the classroom. So it's okay because it tells us more about the child. So I just want to stress that because that was something that wasn't maybe explained to me the way I needed it explained. So if you have any questions about that, feel free to reach out and I'll try and help you with that because knowing that has helped me so much. Okay, and then one more more test that I do pretty much always if it hasn't been done <laughs> is the Day C two, and the Day C stands for Developmental Assessment of Young Children. They have a lot of different um, subtests, and so one of the ones I'll do in addition to the language comprehension and expression subtest is the social emotional assessment, and this helps with that parent interview. Um, so you can ask the parent those questions that are on the Day C, and then fill it out as you need to. If the student's already in seat, which means they're already in the program and you're not doing an initial evaluation where you might be going into the home or bringing the parent to you, uh, you can also give this to the teacher as well, which I've done. But I think it's better for to, to give it to the parents. If you want to do go an extra step and give one to the teacher as well, go for it. So then again, you can show um, where things might match up and might be different. So those are my go-tos. There are plenty, plenty more. Um, and then I also like to use a series of informal questionnaires that, you know, like I said, they talk about how the child requests, how they play, what do they, what, what happens when you withhold a preferred item, what competing behaviors do they demonstrate that tell me there might be communication breakdowns, gestures, facial expressions, demonstrating change in affect, things like that. Um, one thing I want to make sure I ask in a parent interview is what a typical day looks like for the child. So this is especially helpful for initial evaluations because you may find out more about how much time the child has to interact with parents, peers, siblings, etc. You'll find out maybe about screen time and how much screen time they're getting. Um, you can ask them how they see them protesting, what preferred means of communication are. So that way you know when you sit down with the child after interviewing the parent, maybe where they're going to be at, and then you can have a good idea of what you want to model and try to get imitate, imitation from. Um, another thing to keep in mind during assessment with little ones, and, and any child, really, this goes for all ages, but keep in mind sensory needs that might impact communication as well. So if you're seeing some struggles with communication, kind of jot down what the environment's like. If you're doing an in-home evaluation, you know, um, how much light is in the room, how much, how many different sounds are, you know, kind of going on that might be distracting. Um, what's the temperature like? Uh, what, you know, does a child seem to be having an aversion to sitting on the carpet? Is, are there a lot of toys at the child's level? Are they able to access everything, right? Things like that. Um, because those will, those will help you kind of understand maybe why an attention, the attention was fleeting, um, you know, why you weren't getting as much engagement because all of the things the child would have requested are right there. Things like that are super helpful to just jot down. So you, because let me tell you, you won't be able to remember it all and it's really good information. So maybe you will be able to remember it. Maybe I'm underestimating you. I'm sorry, but I know I thought I could remember it all and I couldn't, you know, cause you do so many evaluations sometimes. <laughs> we have a lot of things going on in our mind. All right, let's talk about school-aged and middle school assessment. 
Um, one of the things that I found when I was working uh, during my clinical fellowship in the elementary school setting was the SSIS. The SSIS is the Social Skills Improvement System Rating Scales. Whew, I need to take a breath. Um, so this is a scale that I know they have for school-aged kiddos. They have it for middle school as well. I don't know about high school. That's something uh, I would recommend you looking into. But this is something I'll send to parents and or and give to teachers. Um, there is there there's different ones. So there's one for home and one for school. So I'll give obviously uh, where they go wherever they go whatever's appropriate they go to each person right. And this assessment does a wonderful job of teasing out behaviors and looking at where communication breakdowns are happening. It also differentiates between behavior. Um, So like competing behaviors that might be impacting communication versus behaviors that are happening as a result of communication difficulties. Again, with middle school, with school age, high school, preschool, you know, littler ones, (laughs) um, it's so important to OWL, to observe, wait, and listen, to have as many opportunities to maybe have informal um, language samples and student interviews, parent interviews, questionnaires, observation as possible, in addition to doing those um, norm-based assessments. And when it comes to observation in middle school and in elementary school, one thing I really learned well from my supervisors is when you when you think about, okay, yeah, I'm going to do an observation, right? Because that's part of our reports. Um, you know, you got to have that observation piece, the behavioral observation. Well, Make sure you're doing it, especially, especially for social communication um, assessment. You're doing it in different settings. So you might do like a 10-minute observation. This is going to sound like a lot, but it's so worth it. You might do a 5- to 10-minute observation at lunch. Then you might do one during more of like a free play, recess, something like that outside. For middle school, PE is a really good one to do um, these observations in. You might do one during you know, an academic class that, or a session, class time that you know the student really likes, and you might do one during an academic session that they don't really like. You might do it during electives if you're middle school, um, middle, middle school SLP. So things like that, if you are home health and you want to do these different observations, I would recommend, again, different times of day, you know, different, uh, maybe one during breakfast or an eating time, maybe during play time. Um, You can always try and schedule with parents when you're doing these evaluations to do it during a time where they might be eating and then transition into play, something like that. So that way you get that well-rounded view of that, all those different social interactions that could be happening during those times. Um, I had a little boy, here's one of my anecdotes for you. So my first year, I had a little boy who I had the honor, the pleasure to uh, assess he was a first grader. I loved this little guy. Um, it was it was one of the assessments, I think, that really taught me a lot about your role as a speech-language pathologist when working with social communication and pragmatics because it takes, you know, they say it takes a village, and it really, it, it does take collaboration with the teacher, with your admin, <clears throat> sometimes with the psychologist. And I had a little guy who... He was a first grader having some difficulties in the classroom. The teacher came to me and said, you know, um, we'll call him Bobby. (laughs) And she said, you know, Bobby's having a difficult time. I think it's his speech. 
And of course, when a teacher says that, you start thinking, okay, well, what exactly, you know, what is happening? What's what's the issue? And she just said he doesn't seem to understand, um, you know, when other kids are talking to him, what they're saying. And so at first, of course, I thought, okay, comprehension. So I went in and I just did um, a class observation. And um, I did notice diff- some issues with social communication with the kiddos, the other kiddos in the class and Bobby. Um, and so I told the teacher, okay, well, here's some strategies, you know, um, try buddying him up with somebody that he likes to work with and everything. And so in the meantime, the teacher was also in contact with the parents and the parents were also saying, you know, he's having a hard time when we go to the park and play with other children and all this stuff. So we ended up doing a full on assessment and I did a variety of observations. I would go into the classroom during science. He loved science. He, um, you know, he was always answering questions. He seemed very eager to be social. I'd go to the playground during recess and he would be going up to other kids and he would be trying to initiate interaction, but it didn't seem like other kiddos wanted to play with him. Um, and then, so it was just things like that. And then I finally, one day kind of, you know, and at this point, of course, an assessment plan is signed. I'm allowed to be observing him and stuff. So one day I went up and kind of tried to listen in on an interaction with a little girl and I listened to the way that he was trying to initiate an interaction with her. And I can't exactly remember what he said, but he was basically demanding that she play with him. And she said, no, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't want to do that. And he kept, he was perseverating on it. And he was just like telling her basically, no, play with me, play with me, you know, and he was a sweet guy. He just didn't understand that, that theory of mine, you know, that she, um, she wasn't necessarily comfortable because maybe he was being too, uh, he, he was just on top of it too much. He really wanted to play with her and it was a little bit maybe frightening to her. I don't know. Um, and so I asked him, you know, what he wanted and he said to play with her. And, and so I said, oh, well, you know, you should try asking her if she wants to play with you because he wasn't really asking if she wanted to. Um, and so those, those little things like asking questions first and, and appropriately greeting his friends, he wasn't really doing that. He would just walk up to them and kind of not really know like what to do after that by saying, you know, hi, Hey, I like your shoes, you know, whatever. I don't even know if first graders say I like your shoes, but you get the point. <laughs> Anyways, so we ended up qualifying him and he had social skills goals or pragmatic goals, like, you know, appropriately greeting friends and, and, uh, maybe, um, you know, staying on topic. That was one of the things he had a hard time doing or, you know, staying on a non-preferred topic. So um, it's just a fun little anecdote, I guess, when it comes to assessment, getting those, all those observations and and taking the time to really try to listen and see where the, the breakdown is happening. Because if you're standing from a distance, all you see is a little girl that doesn't want to play with this little boy who really wants to play with her. And if you get a little bit closer, you listen a little bit longer, you realize, well, he's He's not necessarily um, using his language in a way, in a functional way that will maybe help somebody else want to play. I mean, when you think about first graders, you know, they want to do what they want to do when they want to do it. And if you demand them to do something else, they really don't want to do it. I think that's also very true for preschool. (laughs) Um, All right, so let's get into treatment. So for preschoolers, what I always like to stress that it's, and again, I'm going to always say like, yeah, for preschool, but it goes for all, right? 
But it's always so important to look at where a student is developmentally versus deciding on goals based on chronological age. So an example is like if they're four, but they don't have good joint attention skills, then we don't want to write a goal for topic maintenance. Joint attention is a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of what I work with in terms of social um, communication in the preschool setting. So when a student comes in with limited social communication skills, I'm first like, okay, where's their joint attention? Um, So we do lots of play. And this is fun because it starts to build on that theory of mind too. So as we build those joint attention skills, I work on buddying them up with peers. I start introducing emotions. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's really cool because um, if you have the right little, what I, what I would call joint attention hacks, then you're going to, you know, start building those change in affect when something in the room and the environment changes. Um, using a peer, by the way, I'm going to go back to that really quick, is is gold when it comes to preschool speech and language. Um, I noticed that these little preschoolers would so much rather learn from their peers than from me sometimes. And I'm totally okay with that. So I'll work on, you know, finding which peers seem to be either good models for language or social communication, you know, that are a little bit more maybe animated when they talk and and maybe really verbose little guys because sometimes... (laughs) (laughs) that helps you know sometimes it doesn't sometimes you need the quieter little guys just to be a peer support (laughs) because otherwise the more verbose ones are so overwhelming um but yes that peer modeling is really good and and they start to uh not only do the kiddos that you know I'm going to say it with quotes and in my finger my fingers are doing quotations but you know the typical developing children um not only are they good peer models for the kiddos that are working on some of the speech and language goals, but the the kiddos that are working on maybe some of that social communication or other language goals, they're good models too for our their peers. Um, and, you know, their peers, they're, again, in quotes, typically developing peers, they learn so much because, again, we're tapping into someone else's perspective and someone else's world. They're learning how maybe, you know, Bobby communicates and maybe he communicates a little bit differently. He doesn't like to show me his eyes, but that's okay. I know he's listening to me. Those kinds of things. And so it's really important to um, to start building those, you know, that that foundation, that love for, you know, our differences early on and they become, um, again, the most helpful when you buddy them up with their little kid, their little friends that are in speech and language because more progress happens that way. I hope that all made sense. I get really passionate and then I start, you know, going off on a tangent about peer, peer modeling. But when we talk about things that help build joint attention, again, think about doing this, you know, obviously with you in the speech room, but also if there's a peer involved, these things will help immensely when you start bringing in those peers. Um, one thing I think we all kind of know that maybe helps is withholding items. So <laughs> you might hold back an item and wait for a student to reach out their hand to request it. A good way to, to build that joint attention is hold, oops, I just hit my mic, oops, um, hold the item up by your eye. 
Um, people games are great. So peekaboo, patty cake, um, having them do it with their peers. Another little story for you. I had a little guy who I was pushing into the classroom, which meant I would go in and service him with all of his peers, right? Basically in the classroom. So I'd find times like center time where I would kind of go around with him during his centers and, and, um, maybe model for his peers, how to interact with him to get his attention. And, um, one of the days I went in there, I found a blanket. So I started a game of peekaboo with him. He was okay with it. Like he enjoyed it. He enjoyed the aspect of the blanket falling and having to pick it up. So then I brought a peer over because I figured, okay, well, when that blanket falls, that's a really good opportunity for joint attention, which I don't think I explained the definition for joint attention. So if um, that's kind of a new term for you, joint attention is when you are you and the child or your client are sharing basically an idea. It's like a triangle. So if I have, you know, if I'm shaking a maraca or a shaker of some sort, the child is looking at that and then looking at me waiting for me to shake it again. And we're sharing that idea of, oh, we have something here. And when we shake it, it makes noise kind of thing. So it's that triad, that triangle of attention shifting. Um, And so Yeah. So I, you know, the blanket was falling. So I thought there's that triangle. Me, student, blanket. When I brought a peer in, the energy just changed with him. He was way more engaged. And I saw him more consistently than with me looking at the blanket every time it fell and then looking up at a peer. It didn't happen every time. We were just working on this skill, but that game was so, um, so awesome. And so I like it because when you use like a blanket or something, some other object to kind of hide each other with the peekaboo um, and make it fall all the way to the ground, we need to pick it up so we can, you know, get really animated. <gasps> oh, it fell, you know, pick it up. And you can work on so much language in that too. So it's awesome. Um, and then modeling turn-taking and play with highly preferred activities. Again, another great way to just work on that reciprocal communication, that joint attention, encouraging imitation of actions with peers. So if, you know, t- child A, the peer, claps their hands, encouraging child B to clap their hands, and then keeping that going. Repetition is going to be huge for building that joint attention as well. All right. And then when students start showing the joint attention with their peers, I definitely don't stop there. I encourage them to keep the play. I try to introduce novel toys and games at that point. So maybe not just preferred things, but things that the child maybe doesn't know how to play with yet. Um, They can learn while playing with their peers. And as that joint attention gets stronger, um, we can start, you know, moving on to using their language to get what they need and want more, more consistently. They might already be doing that, but maybe, you know, they're starting to use more word approximations or um, put two words together. So we want to keep building on those things as well. The goal here is to get them using their language socially. So whether they're signing, using picture exchange, gestures, word approximations, vocalizations, we want it to be social. We want it to be fun and engaging. I want to see my students personally using language when requesting, when protesting, when commenting, describing, greeting, etc. So all of those kind of what we would call pragmatic functions. That's the goal that I have, my overriding goal for preschool. You know, I, I always want to see them at least using their language for those pragmatic functions. Greeting each other is something we target in preschool every day. Um, that is one of the, you know, programs, social, emotional, um, I don't know, highlights, I guess, you know, we, we start 
we start the year off by talking about greetings. I have a social story that all of my teachers use to talk about when we greet our friends and our teachers and what happens, what we can do. We have choices. We can handshake. We can high five. We can hug. We can um, wave high. And so those are things that build those greetings into their everyday routine. And um, it's definitely a goal I see come through our initial evaluation team as well. Sometimes students have a little bit of harder time greeting. And like I said, with my little first grader earlier, you know, that was something that we did work on pretty consistently. Um, I also like to do, introduce emotions, which I talked about a little bit already, um, and, and really work on that theory of mind stuff because um, it's one, it's just fun for me. But two, you know, it is it is part of our social um interactions, you know, understanding when another person uh, feels sad or happy. Um, and and then, you know, we can al- almost talk about, you know, what we do to help our friends feel happy. And there's lots of social stories that go along with that. Um, and sometimes we can make our way to whole body listening in preschool. Sometimes we can't. Um, sometimes we make our way to topic maintenance. Sometimes we're not there yet and that's okay. But those are some of the things I'll indirectly work on kind of towards, you know, if a child does have social communication goals and they're getting ready to go to kindergarten, definitely start, you know, kind of introducing that whole body listening language, um, top, you know, staying on topic. So, oh, we were talking about this. Let's, let's, uh, let's talk about the flower, you know, or whatever. Um, but I don't put too much of a stress on it sometimes because they're still little. Their attention is still, you know, it's still apt to shift very often. Um, so it's not something I stress over. School age treatment definitely goes more into the nitty gritty with pragmatics. So again, that topic maintenance, maybe sequencing, appropriately identifying social responses, you know, when you have a social story. Um, greetings are still very relevant. I think they're always going to be relevant for all of us. Uh, appropriately requesting, appropriately protesting, things like that. Um, you know, and and pragmatics and social communication treatment definitely varies due to the wide range of ages and developmental stages that you'll see at the elementary school level. Um, and my best advice is, again, meet the child where they are, especially when it comes to social communication. Um, something I do want to note, which might cause some controversy, <laughs> But um, I'm not big on eye contact goal, and I'll tell you why. You know, I understand it's good to work on, especially with our society's just social norms. And it helps, it does, you know, if you work on it in terms of like helping individuals learn how to give eye contact during interviews or greeting friends, ordering in a restaurant, etc. But it's something I learned, especially when I worked in middle school, you know, I had students where I would say, oh, let me see your eyes. And you watch them. And even in preschool, I'll say this, but you watch them and it's really hard. Um, they, you know, I have one little guy in preschool, he'll squint at you. It, it's causing him some anxiety. And already social communication being engaging is a little bit less or it's a little bit more challenging for, for these students and it's not their comfort zone. And so then I'm on top of that trying to force eye contact and to me that just makes it less functional it makes it less enjoyable and my whole thing is I want my students to enjoy engaging with others I don't want them to um, shy away from it so if I can give them skills for self-advocacy before telling them they have to give me eye contact I would so much rather do that it's way more functional so I'd rather teach you know I'd rather teach them to say you know I I'm not comfortable giving eye contact and um, but yeah like you know 
whatever the case may be, I've heard about um, interviews from um, individuals who have autism when they go on job interviews. And um, one of the things that some job coaches or interview coaches or SLPs that are kind of um, working on those skills with them, those life skills when they're older, one of the things they'll teach them is to just say, you know, oh, I just so you know, like I have autism and um, I have some challenges giving eye contact, but here's, you know, here's my strengths. Let me, let me start with my strengths, obviously. Um, but it's good. It's good to be an advocate for yourself if, if we can, if we can get them to do that much. So that's my eye contact spiel. Now, some might disagree and that's okay. Um, you know, and there's some moments in preschool where we will, you know, say, oh, let me see your eyes, you know, and sometimes kiddos, they, they don't need as much prompting. It's not as, um, there's not as much anxiety around it. So for those kiddos that maybe want to do it, um, great, you know, we work on it. Um, but I, again, I just want to increase enjoyment of social interaction. And my ultimate goal is for my students to want to engage with me and their peers. Um, some ex- I have some experience with middle school and high school. <laughs> Not a lot, but again, for treatment here, definitely meet your child where they are with social communication. Uh, When I worked in middle school, the student interview actually during assessment was very important. Um, And not that I did, you know, I asked very detailed questions about how they were social with their friends or anything like that, but I would ask them to tell me about their day. Tell me what happens when you go home from school. Tell me, you know, do you play sports? Um... Do you, you know, things like that. And then when I, during treatment with my social groups, I would do some pretty informal little interviews, maybe once a week, once every couple weeks, which would give me an idea of what the students were feeling about social communication. So again, I would ask those same questions. I'd say, how was PE today? You know, oh, did you see Michael or, you know, one of their best friends or whatever it was. And then I would do my little observations here and there, you know, go, go uh, visit, Andrew at lunch and just walk by and see if he was, you know, engaged in any kind of reciprocal interaction with his peers and talk to teachers and see how the kiddos are doing and things like that to get a well-rounded idea of how they're making progress on their goals. Um, and then, you know, again, talking about the self-advocacy piece, when they're in middle school, this you have to judge every, every individual child, every student, every client is different. But if you have a an individual who is highly aware of their challenges and is very vocal about wanting to, you know, socialize with certain peers and do certain things. And you can have maybe more of that, um, that conversation about self-advocacy. That's then do it. I would recommend, you know, talk to them about what their goals are in speech and talk to them about how they're going to meet them and what they can try and do. And that might make it way more relevant for them and they already have that intrinsic motivation. So that might be really helpful. Or you have the students that are like, nope, I don't want to, <laughs> which I've had too. Um, and, you know, you talk that you, you can, you know, maybe talk about um, what they do want to do. You know, I had a student who he didn't want to be social. He, he, you know, you go find him at lunch, he'd be reading his library book and he was happy. Um, and I remember asking him what his favorite subject was. It was science. He loved engineering. He loved science. And, um, you know, so we would talk about how to be social in his science class, how he could be social if he went to a museum um, about 
I forget what it was that he liked. I think he liked like, um, uh, I don't know, aerospace. I'm probably getting it wrong. But you know, if he went, so just different things, we'd make that a very social thing. He'd have his speech group and we'd all talk about maybe for like five minutes what he wanted to talk about and turn it into a very social thing. And he'd enjoy talking with people about what he liked talking about, right? So those are just some of the things that I would do for those older kiddos. And then there's all kinds of games. Apples to apples is great (laughs) for like a social game. There's way more for that, um, for those middle schoolers and high schoolers. My goal is to have a high school SLP that I know come on here and give us some tidbits for high school speech language pathology because I am for sure not the expert. I'm on the whole other end, but um, I definitely recommend making sure you stay tuned for that one because that'll be a fun episode. And then um, another episode I will I will guide you to right now, I have an episode out about functional language, happiness, and at um, I think it's advocacy. I think that's the title. It is with my friend Simone Peixotu, and she is a speech-language pathologist in New Jersey, and she works with those kids who are transitioning from high school to adulthood. So she's working on getting them set up to go on job interviews and um, be out in the world, essentially. And so... um, you know, away from the public school, (laughs) they're already in the world, but away from public school where, you know, they've had a lot of guidance. And so now she's working on getting them set up with programs that are going to continue fostering that speech and language development. So um, I would recommend that episode because she's got a lot of great insight there as well. Okay, friends, we are We are at the end of our conversation on pragmatics. I appreciate you so much for listening all the way through, listening to my stories and my thought process through all of this. Obviously, I had notes, but I know I strayed from them a couple of times. Um, And again, Rebecca, shout out to you for suggesting such a fun topic for me to dive a little bit deeper into and do some research on and learn more about so I could talk to you all about it right now. You guys, um, if you have any suggestions for me as far as topics or you want to come on the podcast, please let me know. I'm always open for suggestions and requests. I love answering your questions. I love having fresh ideas and knowing what you guys want to hear when producing a podcast for all of you. (laughs) So let me know. You can um, always find me on Instagram at thanksmorris. If you are, do have something specific you want to talk, want to hear on the podcast or you want to bring onto the podcast and be interviewed with, or maybe just have a casual conversation, right? Um, Go ahead and go to my website, thanksmorris.com. There is a page devoted all to this podcast. There's a submission page where you can actually go on Put in your email, put in your name, put in your request. Let me know what it is. If you want to be on it, let me know and let me know what you want to talk about. Or if you just have a simple question that you want me to answer on here, or if you have a suggestion for a full topic, put it in there, send me an email so I can connect with you and we can uh, can get that going for you. All right, friends, I'm going to go. I need to drink a lot of water after talking for so long. And I'm going to, I'm going to sign off and say, have a beautiful day and I will see you on the next conversation with thanks Morris. (laughs) Bye-bye.